My friend offered me amazing Cambodian food, but I wanted a Big Mac instead. I'm the worst. Up next on the Crossing Ideas Podcast. Welcome to the Crossing Ideas Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Sassy. The goals of the podcast are simple. Using my vast experience overseas as a lens of looking at our world of today. This is Episode 2, What You Don't Know About the Vietnam War, Part 2. In Part 1, it was really about 1945. Truman, Roosevelt, the consequences of what happened during that time period when the U.S. had trained the Viet Minh Ho Chi Minh's troops, and that was really the genesis of the tragedy that we came to know today. But in part two, I want to take a completely different approach. I want to look at the Vietnam War through my experiences in Vietnam. But before we do that, I want to talk about my Cambodian friend. My Cambodian friend is a very good friend of mine whom I honestly really need to stay better in touch with, for sure. His family escaped Cambodia during the 1970s. They moved to Providence, Rhode Island. I met him in a small Christian's college right outside of New York City. It was in the first day of orientation. I was a 17-year-old country boy from Pennsylvania. I was sitting in the cafeteria right beside this young man who was a few years older than myself and I had I am sure that I had never met anyone from Cambodia before he was still learning English I had no idea what he and his family had gone through to get to that point to be sitting in the cafeteria on that day in 1985 we had met just one year after the filming of the award-winning film Killing Fields, which was released in 1984. I had not seen it at that point. Yes, this episode is about Vietnam, so please bear with me. My Cambodian friend and I, we worked together in the school cafeteria. He asked me many English questions. He was still learning the language. I helped him write his papers, not in a plagiaristic type of way, but with wording, with grammar, and a side funny story. His uh, college counselor and one of the professors at, at the college came to me one day, and he showed me an excerpt from a paper that my friend had written, and he had used the word coitus in, the, in his paper. And uh, his counselor wanted my thoughts as if, you know, did my Cambodian friend write this word on purpose? Would he have known that coitus meant sexual intercourse, and would he have put it into an essay? Well... The true and funny part of the story is that for this naive, young 17-year-old, I didn't know what coitus meant. So I just played along with the professor thinking, I have no idea if he meant it or not, but probably not. And I went back to my room and got out my dictionary and learned a word that day. I was a sheltered young man, I must admit, and those were fun days. We did lots of things together. We uh, traveled to my house in Western Pennsylvania. He met my family and my church family. Everyone loved him. I uh, traveled with him by train to Providence, Rhode Island. We went down into New York City. 
which was a big deal for a boy like myself. I hadn't been there much. And we got on the train. I think it was the very first time I ever rode on a train was, was with him. And uh, we, we went to Providence. We met his family. And I will admit this was the very first time I had ever eaten or attempted to eat or was in the proximity of what I will call ethnic food. Okay. I'm ashamed. I couldn't eat it. I, I, I didn't know what those smells were. I didn't know what was happening in that kitchen. Everyone there was so nice and friendly and I, and it was great, but I didn't know how to eat the food. At that point, you have to understand, I didn't even like rice. I was very sheltered when it came to food. And so, do you know what my friend did? He went out and he bought me a Big Mac from McDonald's. <laughs> you know, I think about this uh, now and I am really quite ashamed of my behavior that day. We were literally from different worlds. I mean, we got along just great. We were brothers. We called each other brothers. You know, I, <laughs> there was one time when we were in Providence and he took a wrong turn down a one-way street and I was like, what are you doing? I wasn't really ready to call him brother at that moment. But what a great man. And I still, I still can't believe the Big Mac. Do you know how much I would love Cambodian food right now? Wow. I have changed a lot since those days. We were worlds apart. I remember one night in the dorm, he told his story how his family escaped from the killing fields. What the killing fields were like. He, he, he talked about the Khmer Rouge, Pol Pot, all of his dramatic background that happened post-Vietnam War. Myself and a few other friends just listened to his words, stunned, really, just realizing how privileged we were to grow up in the United States, never having a care in the world about war or hunger or refugee camps. I didn't understand what he said. I, I understood the words, but they had no meaning to me. I literally walked away from that night unable to clearly understand what it was that his family had lived through to get to that point, to be at a small Christian's college across the world, learning in another language. Truly amazing when I think about it now. What he went through to arrive in America, as I later learned, was also the Vietnamese story. It's all connected. Now, I had no idea until several years later when I moved to Vietnam to teach English. That's a whole transformation in itself to, to get me to that point. And I started hearing the stories from my Vietnamese friends, and I started reading, and, and I heard about the, the, the boat people who escaped Vietnam, and I began to understand my Cambodian friend a little bit better. I arrived in Vietnam in 1994, the year the United States government lifted the embargo against Vietnam. And I'm going to go into the economic side of things in episode three called Vietnam BC, before Coca-Cola. You're not going to want to miss that one. But in 1994, the Vietnam 
that I found would be completely 100% different than if you were a tourist visiting Hanoi today. There were very few white people. I, I moved to a town called Haiphong, which is in north, northern Vietnam, a port city, uh, not far from the Gulf of Tonkin. And we were some of the very first Americans back in to the country. And, uh, you know, obviously Americans hadn't been in northern Vietnam for decades and decades unless they were prisoners of war. You would hear things like Lien So, Lien So, because the only white people that they had seen in northern Vietnam over the past 15 years would have been the Soviet Union. And so they would call out Lien So, Lien So. I learned that the main market in Haiphong, they called it, they dubbed it the broken market. One day I asked, well, why, why was it called the broken market? And then someone said, well, America dropped a bomb on it. I'm like, oh, okay. That happened during the 1972 Christmas bombing by Nixon, who was trying to force the Vietnamese back to the negotiating table. There's this very weird dynamic that, that I found myself in. The, the, the Vietnamese were so welcoming, so kind, yet there was always that elephant in the room. That, that bizarre acknowledgement that if I had been there 20 years earlier, I would have been in prison. And there would have been those who wanted to kill me. So I had these oscillating feelings back and forth, and I wasn't sure what I was going to experience, but I knew that what I was experiencing was related to the Vietnam War, as we knew it in America. And so I, had the, I was surrounded by these contradictory things. I, I, would, uh, I would meet someone, they would hear that I'm from America, and that what, they, what would they say? America number one, America number one. And they wanted to learn English. Everyone wanted to learn English, English, English. They, 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 they believed that this was a step out of poverty. And let me assure you that Vietnam 1994 was very, very poor. And the people that I met were the very first ones that would have admitted that. Very poor place. I had met my Vietnamese teacher actually on the street one day because uh, he just randomly came up and he was actually an English teacher. And when he found out that I was from America, I mean, it was, it was just amazing for him. And we became very good friends with this whole family over over the next few years. And uh, uh, I'll probably get into that at some point later on. And so we had this, you know, this overwhelming, welcoming feeling, but then things like this would happen. I, after a few years in Vietnam, I moved to a town called uh, Thai Nguyen, uh, about 60 miles north of Hanoi. And I had a very good young friend, uh, his name was Kung. And uh, they owned a very small uh, motorbike washing station where the little motorbikes, these Honda Dreams, would pull up and they would change the oil of the bike and they would wash it down and clean it and everything like that. And the brand of oil that they used was Caltex. Um, so one of the first times I was over at his house, his mother asked me uh, where I was from. And I replied, you know, I'm from America. And she immediately said the word gay, gay. Which, which in Vietnamese means horrible. Now, she wasn't being rude to me, I, I don't believe, because she was nice, and I I met her many times over the years, and she was always a very nice woman. 
But when Chief was face to face with an American, maybe for the first time in maybe ever, I'm sure those feelings came back. America, wow, our enemy in the past. And here he is at my doorstep, fraternizing with my son. Um, but I, I admit, I, I do stupid things sometimes. And on that particular day, uh, when, when she used the word horrible at me, it, it, at that point, I was, I was fairly fluent in, in Vietnamese. And I just couldn't leave it alone. I just couldn't. And so I said to her, oh, oh, you used Caltex oil. Do you know where that comes from? She's like, she doesn't really know. No, she didn't really know. And I was like, well, that's, that, that stands for two different American states, California and Texas. Look, you're using American brand oil. And she had this look on her face like, oh, boy. And I'm like, I walked away that evening. I'm like, yeah, that was really stupid. I can be really stupid sometimes. But I just couldn't leave it alone for that day. I was working in a in that in that city in a in a university, teaching English to uh, future English teachers. And sometimes we would meet up with the president of the university. He was a jolly old man. Uh, he didn't speak a lick of English, uh, but he would have been fluent in you know Russian and probably Chinese and a couple other uh, dialects as well. And I remember one time we were sitting across the table from him, and I, I was fluent in Vietnamese at, the, at that point. And sometimes our organizational director, I worked with an NGO there, came, came would come and uh, they would visit, and we, we were all sitting around. And, and with a smile, he would talk about the past. And I remember one point he he, he pointed out in a, in a certain direction. And, he's, and he said, during the war, that he manned an anti-aircraft artillery. And he would load it up and fire at the American planes overhead. Now, he's saying this with a smile on his face to an American working for a, an NGO and to the director of that organization. And, and the question I had in my mind is, why? Why is he bringing that up? He was there to remind her and me of what he used to do. And it, and it was all kind of subtle, the way that he did it. And he did it with a smile. But it seemed like a reminder to, to us and a reminder of how things used to be. And then he would laugh and say, oh, but now that's in the past. We are all good friends now. We are all good friends. And you know, when I, when I, when I think about that now, there had to have been a purpose for that. Let me conjecture a little bit. I would say that he recognized Vietnam's poverty and he welcomed these American organizations who came in to help teach English, a crucial skill that their country needed as they built their economy. So he was saying thank you to us for coming, but don't forget what I used to do to Americans. Don't forget that we have power. We may be poor, but we have power. Don't forget that we won. Now, I could be wrong. Perhaps he was just reminiscing. But what I learned about Asian culture is to read into the situation. Look below the surface, and the truth typically lives there. 
This brings me to a few other situations and terms and things that I found myself in as I was learning what the Vietnamese actually thought of the Vietnam War, which, of course, they didn't call the Vietnam War. They called the American War. One of the terms that would often be used was the word colony. They would just randomly include it into a sentence and say, you know, the time when uh, Vietnam was colonized by America. I was like, colonized by America? America's not colon. We've never been colonial masters. What are you talking about? And I had to step back from that a little bit. And what, and from the, especially from the Northern Vietnamese point of view, what we were doing, the United States, in propping up the, the South Vietnamese government and in, with the, the aid and, and everything, what we were doing was no different from what the French had did in French Indochina. The French were there for about 80 years or so. And it's no different than what the Chinese had done in the past to them, as, as they've had many wars and many occupations and different times when the, the Chinese emperors would march down and um, take over Hanoi and, and whatnot. And so you had the Chinese, you had the French who did it. And then, of course, the Americans are doing the same thing. Get out of here, America. Completely different way of looking at things. And it really took me off guard to think that they thought that we had colonized the southern part of Vietnam. There was also uh, a museum in Hanoi, and I believe in Ho Chi Minh City as well, and it used to be called the Museum of American War Crimes. I think they've made it a, a little bit less aggressive in their tone these days, but that's what it was called, the Museum of American War Crimes. Okay. Yes, they, they won the war, and they needed America's help. America did cruel things to their country, they would say. We welcome you back. We need you. What an interesting and crazy dynamic. You know, they would often say, the war is in the past. The war is in the past. But I know now that that was a facade. I mean, they weren't lying. They were moving forward. But I arrived just 19 years after the end of the war. Just 19 years after that last helicopter took off from the U.S. Embassy in Saigon. And the war was still everywhere. It lingered over the sky like one of those hot, humid... Hanoi Nights. It was there, always there, surrounding every situation. In the summers, uh, I would often go back to the United States to visit family. And I remember one summer in particular, I was at my father-in-law's house, and um, he had invited a, a man over who was doing some work on the house or something. And the, as he was introducing me to this uh, worker who, was, who came to the house, I introduced myself as I'm teaching English in Vietnam. And he literally fell backwards a few steps. He was so shocked. He was a former soldier in the Vietnam War. And he couldn't imagine why an American would go back to Vietnam. You know, in America, the war left a whole generation not trusting their government. It killed more than 58,000 American soldiers. 
It tore apart untold families. It gave untold returning soldiers so many different struggles to try to find a way to assimilate back into American life. But at least in America, we still had a functioning economy. We had infrastructure, facilities, modern life, conveniences, entertainment. The Vietnamese had nothing. They had victory. Okay, that was something. That was something great in their eyes, for sure. But they had nothing. Millions of people were scared of retribution for their connections with the southern regime. Many fled in peril in similar ways to my Cambodian friend's family. Many died trying. Many suffered in re-education camps. Even the victors of the North had to admit the devastation and the cost of the war. They literally had nothing when it came to material wealth. Again, in the next episode, I'm going to delve into the post-war economics of Vietnam and tell the stories of that era. But what many Americans don't know is that the Vietnam didn't end once the Americans left in 1975. Communism had won, right? It's exactly how it was predicted. The domino effect, China falls, Vietnam falls, Cambodia falls, Laos falls. They all fall to communism. And, that's, and they did. That was 100% true. But there was something very, very important and major that everyone missed. The Vietnamese hate the Chinese. The Cambodians hated the Vietnamese. Nobody trusted anyone. From the West, we might look at, oh, they're now all communist comrades. Uh, we will never be able to go there again. They will be their own little socialist utopias. Well, nothing could have been further from the truth. There's a wonderful uh, book by Nayan Chanda uh, named Brother Enemy. It's absolutely fascinating, and it outlines the era after the Vietnam War, the era when the Khmer Rouge attacked the Vietnamese villages. And uh, they, they, the Khmer Rouge, the, the Cambodians wanted to recapture the southern tip of Vietnam, the Mekong River Delta, claiming it was theirs. Now, the Viet Vietnam complained to the international community about the attacks, and nobody cared. Nobody believed the Viet Cong. Nobody v believed the communists, or they, they didn't want to even hear what they had to say. So eventually, uh, the Vietnam troops marched into. Cambodia marched into Phnom Penh and ousted the Khmer Rouge. The Vietnamese, the Vietnamese communists, inadvertently stopped the killing fields. What my friend's family was escaping from. The Vietnamese, for doing so, they were called the pariah. They were like, look, there they go, there, there they go, capturing another place. We knew it all along. But nobody in the outside had really understood what Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge had done inside Cambodia, killing up to a third of their own population to create a socialist utopia as, as quickly as possible. But in response to their attacks on Cambodia, China invaded northern Vietnam in early 1979. Now, who knew that? So they were not getting all, all along at all. They were fighting each other, even though all of them are communists. 
highly recommend uh, the, the book Brother Enemy by Nayan Chanda. Please look it up if you're interested in that time period. The war that the student, the, the, the parents of my students knew in Vietnam was just vicious and unrelenting and devastated them through the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and had la long-lasting effects into the 1990s. As this young man of 27 landed at Noi Bai Airport in August of 1994, quickly found out. I had no idea what I was about to experience. You know, they, they say you don't really understand a man until you've walked in his shoes. Well, I never experienced anything like my Cambodian friend did or, or my Vietnamese friends. But I felt like my time in Vietnam was leaving my footprint behind. And from my vantage point, I could begin to walk alongside of some of those experiences. And I could begin to empathize with that young man who escaped or that person who lost a loved one at the broken market in Haiphong on Christmas Day. You can also begin to understand the true cost of the Vietnam War as I begin to acknowledge all the facets of it that I never knew. And I guess if we move closer to empathy, then we are moving in the right direction. You know, I hope beyond all else that my friend has forgiven me for that Big Mac moment. I have grown up, I believe. And I guess this podcast is one way of trying to acknowledge some of the mistakes of the past. This is Mark Sassy, and this has been the Crossing Ideas Podcast. Up next in Episode 3, Vietnam, B.C., Before Coca-Cola, How Capitalism Saved Vietnam. Thanks for listening.